You can open up your Bibles on your phone or in your physical Bible to Colossians chapter 3. We are in the Pallet series. Uh, for those of you who are, are new to the church or you've been away for a while, we, we're talking through the book of Colossians, which talks about how Jesus is our foundation. Every other foundation we have in this world um, is going to crumble, it's going to let us down, it's going to disappoint. But Jesus is the only sustainable individual in our life that is able to act as one who's weight-bearing on all of our hopes and dreams, all of our insecurities, our jobs, our relationships, everything. And his foundational influence is crazy impactful on that. We talked about how that impacts our marriage when we talk about Jesus and my spouse. Uh, We talked about Jesus and my empty ring finger and the importance within Christianity for singleness and how singleness is not, um, you really need to be fixed and and tweaked and and made better because uh, really in order to have the backstage pass to Christianity, you got to be married and be really great if you had kiddos. Nope, absolute opposite to that we see in scripture talking about Jesus is your foundation. Um, You are complete in him and you go on from there. We talked last week about Jesus and my crazy kids and just the whole concept of raising uh, children with Jesus as our foundation. And this week we're talking about Jesus and my jerk boss. Now, you should have seen just the looks on the faces of the staff when we were in a uh, worship planning meeting um, a while back. We were going through each of the weeks and said, okay, um, I'd like to speak on these and who would like to speak on this and who would like to speak on this? And then we get to Jesus and my jerk boss. And I said, and who, which of you guys would like to speak <laughs> on this one? And then the awkward, squ- you know, just stares and just kind of like diversion of the eyes. But then all of a sudden they started to go, and as soon as they're about to vault, I'm like, you know what? I got it. I got it. I, I got this. No problem. The concept of, of a jerk boss is something that most everyone can relate to. If, if you've worked for, and let's just say it's someone in your distant past, because your boss might be somewhere in this room. If you worked for a jerk boss or an unhealthy work environment in your past, just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, that's almost 100% of you. Has anyone never worked for a boss or a work situation which was, uh, okay, okay, awesome. How old are you? About what? Nine. nine. Okay, well, you got some time. That's awesome. When I was nine, I had the same situation. And then I turned 12, and I found out at 12 years old, you could have a job as a paper boy. So I was a paper boy, and I, I was not working in a great environment. And I went from that to all these other jobs that I had throughout my life. I, was, um, I worked in retail um, at a place called Miller's Outpost. I worked in uh, retail when I moved to Chicago in the Water Tower Mall at the Disney store in the Water Tower Mall. Um, I had a chance to be a juice jockey at Jamba Juice in Southern California, which was awesome. Um, I also was somebody who, um, I worked dish crew in in a cafeteria, and I I worked at a place called Telesite in Chicago, where I was the telefollow-up individual, not the telemarketer, but the telefollow-up. If you had your tires or brakes done at Sears or NTB, I was the guy that would call you afterwards and say, on a scale of one to four, would you say that you were somewhat dissatisfied, extremely dissatisfied, extremely satisfied, or somewhat satisfied? And I would be that guy. And so that was me. And that was the only job of all the jobs I've ever had that I was ever fired from, not laid off, totally fired from, and it was awful. I interned at a church in California, and I interned at a church in northern Illinois before coming here, and so I understand that in spite of the fact that I may not have walked in the shoes that you're walking in, and some people here, the stories of what you've gone through in your work or currently are going through in your work would make anybody, anybody want to quit. Most everyone here, as we've already said, have worked for one of these people. How many of you right now are a manager, director, or a boss? 
okay, you joined the dark side. <laughs> and so if, if I'm talking to you, this is not just beating up on you, it's actually relating to you because the passage we're going to talk to you speaks both to the employers and the employees. And the passage that we're going to be looking at is this, Colossians chapter 3, verses 22 uh, to 4.1. And as we're getting into this, it may be very, very odd for you to look at this and say, why in the world would you talk about work coming from that passage? It seems a little bit inappropriate, slightly offensive. Let's take a look. Chapter 3, verses 22, and this is talking about work. Chapter 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart, as, you're, as though you were working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Okay, just before we even get into some of the cultural issues there that are a little problematic uh, for anyone reading the Bible, we have to understand that Paul has this really strong beat in his heart for this concept of calling. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, he talks about it, that, that even, you know, things that you think that are just a station in life, I'm single or I'm married, he looks at not just as, well, this is what I would check off on a survey, but this is actually a calling on my life. If I'm married, it's a calling. If I'm single, it's a calling. And then he, he fuses that into this reality of, of work, that your work is not just a way to provide food on the table or, or, or a way to, you know, to advance your career. It's actually a, it as well as a calling. And so looking at work through that lens, we're going to be talking about the foundation of our calling. We're going to be talking about the purpose of our calling. And finally, the effect of our calling. If you are in Jesus, these are our realities as far as work. First off, the foundation of our calling stems out of who we are in Jesus. The beginning of chapter 3, um, the, the verses that lead up to this set that out. We've been talking about this the whole way through. Paul is saying, you, you're dead you're dead to yourself and you're alive in Jesus. I mean, and he's the one who's come to it, this dead corpse of who you are, and he's breathed new life into it. So everything you have is reflective of him. This is a new humanity. Everyone in society is going to treat their spouses a certain way, but not you. Everyone in society is going to treat their parents a certain way, but not you. And everyone in society is going to work and have a knee-jerk reaction to their employers or employees that is normal and natural. And that's fine for them, but it's not fine for you because you are part of the new humanity in Jesus. And because of him, Something's happening inside of you that changes that. It transforms that. It alters that. But at the same time, as we're looking at this passage, we can't get too far without tripping over the fact that he starts off with the word slaves. And he's not like just using this soft, you know, I'm not really meaning slaves. He says slaves. He uses the word doulos. And doulos is one who is subservient to and entirely at the disposal of his master, a slave. And not only that, I mean, not only does he talk about slaves, but he doesn't like shoot down the concept. Like, oh yeah, and something else I want to talk to you about, slavery. What is up with that? That's not part of the new humanity. Stop it. He doesn't say that in this passage. Now, to be fair to Paul, there is another passage where um, this slave ran away from his master. This guy named Onesimus, and Paul tells Onesimus to go back to his master. His master is actually a Christian, Philemon. And Paul writes a letter to Philemon and says, okay, take this back to your master. And in talking to Philemon, he says, 
this person who you look at as a slave has come back to you. But you need to understand that he is not just someone who's your property. He is your brother. Before the Lord, he is your equal. And Paul even encourages him to liberate him. So the idea of, of the Bible and slavery is, is, is not something that's congruent, but it's clearly something that was going on in this, in this time frame, even to the point that Paul doesn't flinch when he goes from talking about, hey, let's think about marriage from, from God's vantage point. Boom. Let's talk about how we respond to parents from God's vantage point. Boom. And then he gets into slaves. If it was me, I would have written, oh, now that we've talked about God's awesome creation of marriage and parenting and all that stuff, let me just talk about some of the evils in society. Number one, slavery. This is messed up. Let's abolish it. Let's change it. Let's overturn it. But he doesn't do that. He goes from parents to kids into slavery, right? Like just without flinching, which for me is problematic. Wayne Grudem put it this way, though. He said, the question of slavery is much different from the question of men's and women's roles in the home and in the church. God created marriage and God created the church, but slavery was a human institution, not created by God. I know that there were some Christians who tried to use the Bible to support slavery in the 18th and 19th centuries in England and in the United States, but they were wrong in their arguments. And other Christians looked at the Bible and disagreed with them and argued back. The people who tried to support slavery from the Bible eventually lost those debates. Why did they lose the debates? Because when scholars were actually looking at the culture and context of what is happening in this Bible, they were realizing that this was radically different than what people were seeing all around them in the 17th and 18th centuries and 19th centuries. Because when I think of slavery, I go right back to the Civil I don't know about you, but I go right back to the Civil War era, and that's what I'm thinking. And it grosses me out that so many Christians stomached that for so long. And it even further offends me that so many Christians actually use passages like this to support the fact that they were doing what they were doing as biblical. Until scholarship allowed for people to say, what you're saying with slavery and what you're doing to these people and how you're treating them is different than what was taking place in the first century, number one. Number two, what Paul was communicating was not communicating in any way, shape, or form endorsement. He was saying, in the current conditions we live in, Here's how we live as a new humanity. Sometimes it feels like we don't have a choice. And I'm telling you, even those of you who are victims and feel like you don't have a choice, in Jesus, you do. One of the things we have to understand that in this day and age that, that Paul's writing, a third of the population were slaves. I've seen that, that number as high as two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. That, 50% of those t- uh, on a typical city street in Colossae were slaves. So just imagine if you went to Louis Joliet Mall and you're walking down the, the mall, 50% of the people you see in the food court, 50% of the people you see walking down, the, down the, the middle section of the mall were slaves. That's what it was like in Colossae. It wasn't this, this group of people over here or this minority ethnic group over here. It was 50% of the population. And a majority of the professional world were slaves, including teachers, craftsmen, and doctors. What they meant by doulos, doulos was far more diverse and uh, complicated than what we think of when we think of World War II era slavery. What they thought of was this concept of um, bond servitude, almost like indentured servitude. So like, for example, if um, you had a cousin, Cousin Larry, and Cousin Larry and uh, a couple other guys got a little wasted, and they got out and they got themselves in some trouble. They, they burned down a barn, they, just, some, just dumb stuff. It's Cousin Larry. 
If they had to go to jail, they would go to jail, and when they got out of jail, one of the initial things that they would have almost as a probationary period would be to go into being a bondservant, to being a doulos. It basically was a way to serve off some time as a probation to society. Let's say we're not talking about Cousin Larry. Let's say we're talking about your family. And say your family in the first century AD decided that you want to buy a sweet SUV. And just imagine that they had sweet SUVs. And this SUV was crazy expensive, but you're like, it's cool because I got this awesome job as a blacksmith. All's good. And so you go ahead and you buy the sweet SUV, but all of a sudden the blacksmith, you know, the whole place burned down because of Cousin Larry. And now all of a sudden you're out of a job and you have no way to pay for this, this awesome SUV and you are in debt. You could not just declare bankruptcy in this day and age. What you would have to do was you would go into, as the, to protect your family from your entire family going into jail, you would become a bondservant to pay off the debt to society, to pay off your debt to the car dealer. So if you have debt right now, Back in the first century, you would be in bond servitude to whoever your debtor, the, the person who's lending you money, and you would be their servant. You would be their doulos. And so Paul's writing to a church, and he's saying, those of you who are enslaved, those of you who are in this, this situation, this is not pretty. This is not a good situation. Obviously, it's not ideal. You have fewer rights. You have, you, you have, you have fewer abilities to do what you want. Your liberty has been just squelched. In this situation where you feel like you have no choice, my communication to you is that you do. So the question would still be, the entire passage about the duty of slaves may seem completely irrelevant to our day. So how, how does that relate to us? It contains, however, this enduring principle. Christians, whatever their work, are like slaves in Paul's day to see work as service to the Lord. And that first comes from the foundation. The foundation of, of our calling is this, who we are in Jesus. The foundation of our calling is who we are in Jesus. See, that when we have Jesus as our foundation, all of a sudden, our foundation is no longer who we are, who, what our work, our job is. And so if we're doing awful at our job, we must be a terrible person. If we're doing great at our job, we must be a wonderful person. And we identify ourselves through that lens. When kids are growing up, when kids are growing up, we'd ask them all day long, what do you want to be when you grow up, Right? So what were some of the things that you wanted to be when you grew up? Not saying that you, you actually succeeded at it, but what were some of the things that you wanted to be when you grew up? Anyone? Yeah. Teacher, teacher. Okay. Author. Awesome. Anyone else? Orthopedic surgeon. Orthopedic. <laughs> awesome. Orthopedic surgeon. That is more specific than any other service God. That's awesome. Anyone else? Famous novelist, not just a novelist, famous. Mother, did someone say mother? Okay, mother. Judge. A what? Judge. judge. You're going to judge. Okay. Now, here's what happened. Some of us accomplished those realities, right? You're doing the job you wanted, you hoped and dreamed when you grew up as a kid. When I was a kid, I saw police academy and I wanted to be a cop. I saw space camp and I wanted to be an astronaut. I saw backdraft and I'm like, I am going to be a firefighter. That, and, and, I, and that's what I want to be. I'm going to be these, these jobs. The problem is that we're asking kids the wrong question. We're asking them, what do you want to be when you grow up? As if whatever you do is who you are. We're not asking them the right question. The right question is, what do you want to do? 
What do I do as a job or a vocation? Or where do you want to start as a job or vocation? In light of the fact that you might not end up there five years down the road or 10 years down the road. Asking them who they will be is the wrong question. Because kids grow up thinking, this is the, my dream is to be this. And then if they grow up and they don't accomplish that task, they have the discouragement of what if. Man, what if I was actually an NFL player? What if I actually was that novelist? If only I had more skill or if only I had more money, if only I had more this or that. And all of a sudden we just feel like, well, I guess I just got to do this because this pays the bills. Or even more sad than the discouragement of that reality is the flip side of the coin. What if the kids actually do get their dream? And then they struggle with the depression of the fact that no job could accomplish who they are. I'm a firefighter, and now I'm looking at it with a disillusionment because this isn't what I thought it would be. This isn't as fulfilling and long-term satisfactory as I thought it would be. Why? Because it never could. We try to put into that job who we are, when who we are is who we are in Jesus. That's the foundation of who we are. That means that no matter what job you have, your calling is built and based on something that supersedes and transcends your job. It's that important. And then on top of that, Jesus steps in and he says, and on t- you know, everyone wants the best job. And, and sometimes it feels like we, we're not able to do the best job. We're not able to be in the best job. And sometimes the jobs we have put us down or we're just, I feel like I'm stuck and I have no value because of that. And so Jesus talked into a culture that was used to the idea of servant- servitude and being a slave to everyone else. And he said, but you know what? In my kingdom, The people that are really on top of the world, the people who are really great are the people who are the servants. I mean, everyone in our society looks at the people that are on the lowliest low as ones who are like lame. I'm saying they're awesome. I'm saying that that's the heart that I want every one of my followers to have. He said in Mark chapter 10, Jesus called the disciples together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, your diakonos, which is another word for like a a waiter. If you want to be great, be the person who's serving the food, who's living off of the tips. And whoever wants to be first must be a doulos, a slave of all. And then Jesus gives perspective. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The thing that we come away with, that we hang our hat on as Christians as far as work, is that it's founded and based. Our work is not our identity. Our work is not an identity statement. I put this in your notes. Because of our foundation in Jesus, our occupation is no longer an identity statement. So you lose that job, that doesn't mean that you've lost who you are. Because that job never could encapsulate who you are. Who you are is in Jesus. Os Guinness put it this way. He said, first and foremost, we are called to someone. God, not something such as motherhood or politics or teaching or somewhere such as the inner city or Mongolia. I believe that God can put special callings on your life, that you're doing something you're super passionate about for him, and that has a sense of calling to it. That's awesome. But at the foundation of who you are, the foundation is that you're called to a person, not a job. Then that person is Jesus. So the foundation of our calling is who we are in Jesus. The purpose of our calling is the glory of God. That's the point. The, po- the point supersedes and goes beyond just paying the bills and, and making sure that our career is, gives us some type of value. It actually goes to the, the source of our calling, which is the glory of God. 
See, God, before sin entered the world, back even in the garden account in Genesis, you have work. And it wasn't like lame, it wasn't, it was just, it was work that brought glory to God. And all the way since then, work has gotten complicated because of sin and how people that are not great bosses and not great employees have complicated things. But work is still something that is our opportunity to glorify God through, to actually bring this to to be for him and, and make it something that brings him glory. And yet, we hate our jobs. Forbes magazine did an uh, article and they said that they found that 60%, 60% of Americans hate their job. They're not satisfied with it at all. And only 40% were somewhat satisfied or very satisfied, which is interesting. I mean, like if we said right now, how many of you hate your job? There probably would be a lot of us who are like, oh no, no, that's not, you don't say that in church. I mean, because I'm supposed to be happy with everything. Work stinks, but I love it. But as soon as I go back out there and I'm working, I'm talking with my employees uh, or the people that I work with, you know, my co-employees, I'm, I'm just going to be totally digging the boss or digging the situation because it's not satisfactory. I can't stand school. I can't stand this teacher. I can't stand this employer. I can't stand whatever. And so the, the truth is, is that, that a majority of us are truly, we, we hate our occupation. And so Forbes magazine actually gave 10 things that you should do if you hate your job. And I just kind of consolidated them down to seven, but they fascinated me as what they would even speak to a believer. Uh, First off, if you hate your job, figure out if it's you or the job you're unhappy with. Dum, dum, dum. That's not right. We shouldn't be saying that. It's, It's important to determine whether the things you're unhappy with have to do with you or the job. For example, if you're stressed and you want to change jobs to relieve tension, it may follow you and you'll find the same thing at the next job. I mean, have you ever experienced that? The frustration, like, oh, if I just had that job. And then you get that job, and you're like, ugh, that job looks a whole lot better now. (laughs) And you have that type of frustration. Figure out, first off, is this a problem with you, or is it a problem with the job? Secondly, talk to your supervisor. They they just talk about the importance of, if it's a schedule or compensation thing, communicate. Have the respect and gentleness and compassion to communicate with your boss, even if it seems like that'll be a dead end. Don't quit immediately. It's a bad idea to quit immediately. Um, if you have a job that provides decent compensation that's, that isn't unbearable, then consider staying put for right now. Before you run from your current job or decide to change or transition to another field, do the research and preparation necessary so you'll be educated and qualified. Let me put a qualifier on that. If you're in a current job, I mean, the whole thing, the, the purpose of our job, the purpose of our calling is to glorify God. If you're in a current job that there's no way this could glorify God, quit immediately, okay? If you're in a role, in a job, where you're like, and you're just struggling, I don't know, can I glorify God with this? I mean, I'm a drug dealer. <laughs> I'm faithfully giving out of my proceeds. I mean, no. It, because, because of our calling is built and founded in who Jesus is, and because the purpose of it is the glory of God, if we're in a job that does not do that, quit. Also, they, they put in the qualifier, if you're in a job that is unsafe, <laughs> quit. <laughs> you don't need to like, well, maybe I should just give this some time. No, get out of there. Four, change your attitude. Um, they actually encourage you to change your attitude. This is a secular article, but it says, be careful about letting your negative feelings show while you're still on the job. Even though you're unhappy and may leave soon, you want to be leaving by your decision and not the organization's. Be professional and pleasant and follow through with your responsibilities. If you're fired, it will be much harder to find your next opportunity. Okay, number five, even if you plan to quit, keep doing your job well. 
at that point made that. The reality is, is that, that, and this is something that speaks to believers, I believe. I think that it, as Christians, we need to recognize that if you're a Christian, if you're a follower of Jesus, your work, your calling is built and based on who Jesus is, and your work is an opportunity for you to bring glory to God. Let's just pause on this point and read verses 22 and 23 once again out of chapter 3 of Colossians. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for who? The Lord, not your boss. Your boss may not deserve it. Your boss may not warrant your respect or your hard work. Paul is saying, I don't care who your boss is. I don't care how awesome or how negative or whatever. Work in such a way as you're not working for your boss, but you're working for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. And he goes on from there. If you have a boss named Bob, you're working for Bob, but you're really working for Jesus. Bob is not Jesus. Bob is not God. But Paul says that if you're working for Bob and you're following Jesus, when you work for Bob with all of your heart, you're actually doing that for Jesus, not for Bob. And the case in point is when Bob is not watching you, are you still bringing your best to your field? When, when you look and everyone else is just doing like par level stuff, and you know that if you do a little bit better, like if you really do your all, it's going to make you look like a complete freak. And you do it, and they say, what are you doing that for? Why? He doesn't care. Then you could respond, I'm not doing this for Bob. I have a higher calling on my life than Bob, and that's Jesus. Even if you plan to quit, keep doing your job well. So that, by the way, so that if you do leave that job, when you leave that job, people who know that you're a Christian watch the way you ended. I don't care what's happened up to this point. They watch the way that you ended that job, and they say, I don't like the way that, I don't like the fact that he's leaving the organization, or I totally get why he's leaving the organization, or this dude wasn't even fit for this organization. He should have never started here. But the way that he worked and the way that he left this place was different. Don't take it out on others. Don't treat your colleagues and clients poorly because you're miserable in your job, and definitely refrain from gossiping or complaining about them. I love it when like secular articles are saying, so what the Bible said, do that. Number seven, change your job without changing companies. And just the wisdom of recognizing that bailing is not always the best call. Sometimes the best call is to look within the organization and shift things around. Now, this, this is truth for anybody, believer or not believer. But if you're a Christian, then you have the fruits of the Spirit inside of you. That means that God is doing stuff inside of you where you have now opened up and been unlocked to be able to flesh out love, joy, peace, patience, faithfulness, goodness, self-control. And when I'm reading these, I'm saying to the degree that a Christian is following what Jesus is doing in his life, this stuff starts to hum. It starts to, to kick into full gear. And your, your faith starts to be reflective of where you're at, wherever you're at, to be that type of person. Pastor Dave uh, had in, in your notes, he, he had the addition, uh, he sent this over to me through email, that just to kind of summarize that, um, if, you're in a, if you hate your job, you're in a bad situation. Number one, change your attitude towards your boss. Two, talk to your boss about your concerns. Three, pray that your boss will change. <laughs> That's one of those miracle prayers. And then four, find another job. If that, that doesn't happen, if that doesn't shake out, to find another job. But I would challenge you to do so in such a way that you're even looking at the way that you're leaving 
as a testimony to God. The foundation of our calling is in who we are in Jesus. The purpose of our calling is the glory of God. And the effect, the effect of our calling is that God actually blesses the world through you. That God actually uses your work and what you do in your work to bless the world. And this is, this is kind of a fuzzy thing because we oftentimes we think of jobs as jobs. And like, what, what's a, like what's a, a spirit? If like you wanted to follow a spiritual vocation, a spiritual job, what would, what would, what would be a good spiritual job? Missionary. Missionary. Boom. What else? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> right. And then everyone else's job is kind of like, well, yeah, you know, it's what, what, uh, what, what I'm good at. This is what I, I do to pay the bills. Spiritual job. I mean, if I really felt a calling by God, I could whoo, go up and be a pastor or a missionary or something. But everything else is, is kind of like just whatever. And that actually is, is a medieval concept. It's a medieval concept. It's not a biblical concept. See, um, back what ha- ended up happening um, was this, this view of work that stemmed out, out of the early church once things kind of got fuzzy. See, what you had was you had the world which wasn't super cool with Christians, with the church. And what ended up happening is that the world was always doing this. I mean, they were always over the church until this guy named Constantine comes around. And after he died, um, right around 380, uh, he says that uh, the, the whole Roman Empire said that actually the church is going to be kind of the state religion. Why don't you go ahead and hit the lights, Nate? And as the state religion, what was going to end up happening is that culture was going to be impacted by the church. The world was no longer on top. The, oh, hello. The church is. And this was that triumphalism that I'm talking about up there. Because after the Roman Empire fell in medieval times from 500 to 1500, you have the church as the power structure. It was over everything. So the way that, that the culture was impacted was through the church. But it was like a spotlight. Everyone who was born into, into the, the country was basically a Christian. And so the church was someone who had all of the power. If you wanted to really grow in your faith, and if everyone's just automatically a Christian by birth, well, then the way that you grow in your faith is you seek really spiritual jobs. And they looked at it as, well, there's spiritual jobs and there's temporal jobs. The temporal estate, which is like carpenters and doctors and homemakers. And then there's the spiritual estate, those who are actually working at the top. I mean, really, the holy jobs are up here, and they impact everything. Well, it didn't take long for people to realize that this is a, can get abused really, really quickly. This is something that um, a lot of Christians right around the Reformation era decided is messed up because um, society isn't supposed to be just like spotlit on by the church where the church is just impacting culture by default because they're in charge and they're powerful, but that every single one of us is kind of like this light that Jesus has called us to. And so because of that, the church itself is, some, is an organization that separates itself from the world. They were made up of a lot of individual people, a lot of individual lights. And as opposed to the medieval triumphalism, where the only real way to have a job that was something that God would honor or, or that God really, really approved of, you had to become a monk or a priest or a nun or a pope or something like that. And yet these guys said, no, you know what we're going to be? They were called the Anabaptists. And in 1525, they decided to separate. And the reason that they wanted to separate was because of the fact that this place is pretty dark. And they saw how this place corrupted the church. The church being in power was not a good solution. 
It was a bad solution because that power corrupted. And so they said, we are going to separate ourselves from this and we're going to go over here. And over here, we're going to have the ability to be the light, not impacted, not polluted, not whatever, from the rest of the world. The problem with that is this. Both of these models still have in place this idea that if you want to do a really spiritual job, a really holy job, don't just be like a carpenter or an engineer or a doctor or a teacher or something. There's holy work to be done. And so the power was still like up in the top. The spiritual tasks were still up at top. The way that you impact culture was either to lord it over them or to separate from them. Tell this guy named Martin Luther, who was actually before the, this separation totally took place, he had this different perspective. It was a third way. Martin Luther said, had this idea of this doctrine of work. And he said, you know what? This model right here doesn't work because this is not a biblical model. Instead, we need to recognize that the church is made up of a lot of different lights for sure. And we gather together, but 90% of our life is spent outside of this building and this gathering where we have all these people together. Instead, we need to recognize that Exodus was right. When the book of Exodus talked about how God promised us that we were going to be a kingdom of priests, that we wouldn't just go to a church to have a pastor, minister, or priest minister to us, but that in Jesus, that we would actually become that. And then first Peter talked about how because of the crucifixion and the resurrection, that actually took place. And because of that, all of a sudden, no matter where you are, no matter what job you're in, no matter who you are, where you're going, you're a priest representing Jesus there. No matter what your job is, you're a priest, a minister representing God there. And that Luther's perspective was that God's way to bless the world was for the church people not to stay in the church and for all the holy jobs just to be the pastors and missionaries, but that every job, every job that we had, every individual within that church setting that's redeemed by Jesus would be a light in the darkness. They would come to the church, they would collaborate, they would study, they would work together, they would, they would worship Jesus, but they would always be coming back to the world where they spent most of their life and recognized no matter what occupation they had, they would represent Jesus there. Luther said, he made such a big point about this that he said that, you know what, it's like even changing diapers. Changing diapers is holy work because when you change diapers, you're impacting someone else. If you're a parent, and you're changing a diaper, that is a calling. And now you're using your calling to impact somebody else. Luther uh, wrote this on the estate of marriage. Now you tell me, when a father goes ahead and washes diapers or performs some other menial task for his child, and someone ridicules him as an effeminate fool, though that father is acting in the spirit just described and and in Christian faith, my dear fellow, you tell me, which of the two is more keenly ridiculing the other? God, with all of his angels and creatures, is smiling, not because that father is washing diapers, but because he is doing so in Christian faith. Some have paraphrased Luther to even say that there's more holy work in changing a poopy diaper than all the monasteries and convents in the world. This is why. You can go ahead and hit the lights again, Nate. When we recognize that we are, a, we are a kingdom of priests, if you're in Jesus, you are a priest. And you're like, whoa, 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 whoa. No, 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 I'm an engineer. Yes, you're an engineer and you're a priest. You're a minister. Well, I'm a paramedic. Yeah, you're a paramedic and you're a priest and a minister. I'm a tattoo artist. Yes, and a priest and a minister. You are ministering in that setting 
as an agent, as a light of Jesus. You are somebody who brings to the table what others will not, could not, won't. So let me put it this way. If, let's just say you work at McDonald's. I like Big Macs. I rarely get a Big Mac that looks like the picture on the board. <laughs> you know why? Because my Big Mac was made by someone who's like, oh, when am I off work? Cheese, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Put it in the box, give it away. Who complains about that? Everyone does a poor job of making Big Macs until, until I open a Big Mac. And all of a sudden, it's like pretty close. <laughs> I walk away from there going, oh, that, that's awesome. Luther's point in the doctrine of work is this. If you are a Christian, whatever your job is, if you do it with all that you have, you are God's blessing to a world. If you are a Big Mac creator and you create a solid Big Mac that looks good and tastes good and everything else, when someone eats that and they take joy in that, God is actually blessing. You are God's agent of blessing to them. If you work at a gas station, if you are a teacher, if you're, Paul says, if you're a master, if you're the boss, do your job in such a way that built and based on who you are in Jesus, because you're giving God glory through it, you're doing it in such a way that you are God's ambassador of blessing to them simply because of the fact that as a Christian, you're doing your job the best you can. You are God's avenue of blessing. That person would not experience if it wasn't for you. You are the light of the world. So I don't want to hear anyone say, yeah, well, I'm just a truck driver. Or yeah, you know, I, I'm just a, a homemaker. Or yeah, yeah, I'm just a social worker. That's garbage. You're a priest. You are a priest. I wrote this down when I was uh, finishing up the study that I was doing in this. I said, if Jesus is our foundation, we're called ministers and priests to those around us that have access to God, that we have access to God, they currently do not possess. If Jesus is our foundation, the church, the church is extended far deeper into our society than if it's kept at an address on Wabina Avenue. Instead, his light, his truth, his beauty is on job sites I will never go to. People in this congregation work in Wilmington, Diamond, Morris, Joliet, New Lenox, Wheaton, Chicago, Bolingbrook, and a bunch of other places. You work at desks, on landscapes, on car lots, on rooftops, in kitchens, and coffee shops, in that weird plaything at the end of the Louis Joliet Mall where tons of bacteria hang out. <laughs> so you extend Jesus deeper. You bless more people than a church service could ever touch and bless alone. Right now, we have close to 1,000 people that attend here every weekend. And that's awesome. But it's not just awesome because we have a bunch of people. You go anywhere, there could be a bunch of people. The, the awesome thing about the fact we have that many people here is that if they're representing Jesus, they leave this place and spend the rest of the 90% of their life in places that I will never go and none of the rest of the pastors will. That you actually are going deeper and taking the gospel reality deeper than we could ever go. All of you who are followers of Christ. If you engage your calling in his name and are sent out, you're sent out like rockets into your schools, into the workplaces and trails all around this community. At your job, every decision you make, hear this, every decision you make is an opportunity to rest in your foundation of Jesus, glorify God, and bless his creation. Every burger you serve, electrical problem you fix, every diaper you change is holy work if it's done in him and for him. Amen?
So let us be a church of carpenters and teachers and social workers and homemakers and engineers. A church full of people that, 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 are, that are in the workplace, not just getting a paycheck, but fleshing out our calling. Amen? Let me, I would like to, when we send out missionaries, we pray a commissioning prayer over them. You're going out to 90% of the rest of your life this week before we meet again. And in that place, you have an opportunity to be the light of the world. We please stand? And I'd like to pray over you. And as we do, I'd like us just to, to say this right before we, we pray. This is Jesus' word to his disciples. If you're a disciple of Jesus, this is his to you. Let's read this together. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I commission this group of Christians, everyone in here who's a follower of Jesus, who's been redeemed by your blood, Lord, you call them light. Lord, you you said that you're the light, but then you turn to us and say that when we're in you, that we're the light to our dark world. God, you didn't call us to lord that over people or separate from the dark world, but instead to be the light. So I pray that you enable everyone in here in their vocation to do it with excellence, not for their boss or for their employees or for their clients, but they'll do it with excellence first and foremost for you and that that will spill over blessing to their boss and their employees and their clients. And we'll give you the thanks for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Let's go live it.